Welcome to another episode of 10 Minute Techcom. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Weber, out at University of Alabama in Huntsville. And I'm really excited about today's interview. I've got with me Dirk Rimley. He's an associate professor of English at Kent State University. And he has written a new book, forthcoming from Baywood Press, called How the Brain Processes Multimodal Technical Instructions. And so I'm going to interview him today about the intersections between neuroscience and rhetoric and how that insight can help technical communicators produce better technical instructions. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. I'm really excited about the book. I think it's a great great topic and something that's uh, it's about time that technical communication sort of really turned its attention in this direction. Uh, can you talk a little bit just first about, you know, you're looking at cognitive neuroscience and rhetorical theory. How do they complement each other? Well, uh, as I do in the, in the book, I, I start with Aristotle's observation about rhetoric and biology. Basically, you know, he, he points to the fact that one's ability to understand a message has to be considered when developing the message. And delivering it. So, if if, cert, if someone has certain cognitive issues, disabilities, or understands information a certain way, the person who develops the message or creates the message has to consider that to help that person understand the message um, itself. Mm-hmm. Expanding then uh, beyond that, though, I think the cognitive neuroscience theories really help to explain why certain multimodal theories work well. One cognitive neuroscience theory that isn't really dealt with much in, in multimodal rhetoric is the Colavita visual dominance effect, and I know that Meyer alludes to it in many respects, but he doesn't actually call it the Colavita visual dominance effect you know, in his multimodal learning theories. Can you say that one more time? I just want to make sure that we catch that. It's the, how, how do you pronounce that? Colavita, C-O-L-A-V as in Victor, mm-hmm. I-T-A, mm-hmm. visual dominance of effect. Okay, great. Basically, the Colavita visual dominance effect is just pointing out that visual stimuli are acquired faster than any other stimulus. However, it takes the longest to process, while um, audio or oral stimuli are the slowest pro- to acquire, but the fastest to process. So there's a bit of a, an acquisition and processing disruption there that affects how people can process information. Uh, so it's really interesting in, in that respect. There are also a number of references in cognitive neuroscience to, to multimodal neurons, and just the, the fact that they recognize that there are multimodal neurons, neurons that can process multiple modes of information and stimuli is, is fascinating to me. And I, I integrated that into the, uh, the, the model that I proposed within the book. Uh, there are also a number of general studies that show how neurons behave during learning activities. This helps understand how stimuli affect neurons, such as reward neurons and mirror neurons, both of which impact learning. Relative to persuasion, mirror neurons act differently compared to how they behave relative to learning. So it's an interesting phenomenon. I'm, I'm looking more into that dynamic as well. How? What is the difference? That's interesting to me. I hadn't known that. That's that's what I want to pursue. They mirror neurons basically help the um, the the learner in relative to our context to understand how to perform certain tasks. Because if you're teaching me something, I'm going to watch you do that activity, and the mirror neurons are going to help me to sort of. Uh, mirror your behaviors, not just you know what you do, but how you're actually doing that. Mm-hmm. Relative to persuasion, it sounds like in, in the um, literature that I'm looking at, mirror neurons act to help the the audience relate to the, the the speaker or the person presenting the information, such that they feel like they're part of that person or one with that person or, or like that person. So mm-hmm. another kind of mirror effect, I suppose. 
Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And so does the existence of mirror neurons for the learning aspect, does that make the case then for including observable people? Like, does that effect still occur when there aren't people to mirror in the instructions? You can think of somebody doing an activity if you're reading textual information, for example. You can try to imagine how that would look if you've done anything similar to it, mm-hmm. to that activity. You can you can use the mirror neurons then to, to try to understand how to apply that. I'm, right now I'm thinking about the uh, the audio software. The interface, though, is set up very much like a, a recording equipment. Mm-hmm. Like a recording I, studio or something. Yeah. yeah. You've got the, the stop, play, you know, record pause, all those kind of buttons, mm-hmm. you know, fast forward, rewind. So that sort of helps the user to assimilate with the, the newer technology. Hmm. That's interesting. So basically what you're saying is that in that case, the person, even without watching someone, you kind of, you put, you sort of embody, the learning is embodied in that way. Sure, yeah, certainly. Okay, great. That's really interesting. Thank you. So do you have any other sort of case studies like that or examples that demonstrate how neuroscience can inform the work that technical communicators do in putting these multimodal instructions together? There's some scholarship in cognitive neuroscience neurobiology that examines the relationship between brain activity and how well subjects may learn by using certain instructional materials. Mm -hmm. Uh, In in those studies, they tend to use tools such as the functional MRI and MEG machines Mm -hmm. to make that possible. They're also still utilizing the EEG machines as they have in the past, but basically subjects are given certain learning materials while exposed to an fMRI or an Mm -hmm. MEG machine, and their neural processes are measured as they review the instructional material, and then they're asked to perform a related task. Relative to, you know, instructional design theory, basically, you know, within the instructional technology field, you know, a number of people encourage developing multiple instructional products. So in like a web-based course, for example, you might provide a, uh, a video lecture of, of a given topic. Then you might also have some textual um, instructional material, and then you can also apply a video kind of, uh, of uh, learning tool as well. So there's, there are multiple modes offered to the learner, and then the learner can basically look at it each and ascertain which seems to help him or her mm-hmm. um, learn the material better. Or there might be some redundancy built in that helps to reinforce certain concepts and help them learn even better. Okay, great. And so all of that is the, the idea of providing sort of multiple avenues for learning is then borne out in that research in the neuroscience research. Great. Yeah. Very interesting. I was going to mention that um, I know there's uh, the, the Center for Cognitive Neuroscience at Duke University has done some research as well within their the North Carolina Research Triangle. Scholars mm-hmm. from North Carolina State, North Carolina, and Duke are doing research on neurorhetoric, and, and that's interesting that they've got that, that collaboration going on. Mm-hmm. No, this is it's an exciting time. I know a lot of people within rhetoric have gotten interested in neuroscience, and it's nice to know um, just any additional strategies for the technical communicators toolkit as they're putting these things together. Are there any other strategies that you want to share with us that, you know, if I'm producing multimodal instructional materials, strategies that I can take from neuroscience that might be helpful in making my materials effective? Well, you know, I, in the book, I explain a particular model that combines rhetoric and neuroscience, you know, includes attributes of existing 
theories of neurobiology, multimodal rhetoric, and cognitive psychology, you know, touching upon a, a few of those aspects, basically, you know, having an understanding of how neural stimulation can enhance a learner's ability to learn material or how to engage those reward neurons, for example. Also, the awareness that mirror neurons can help learners understand how to do a given task through modeling and video mm-hmm. demonstrations. Web, as I said before, web-based pedagogy scholarship considers many of the issues toward addressing learning and encourages providing multiple texts, you know, as we just mentioned, to help students use the best way that they can to help them learn. And again, you know, understand that Colavita visual dominance effect, and I, I do a lot with it in the book, and it's just you know, designing instructional materials that consider that issue, and it's, it's basically understanding a relationship between you know, how quickly people acquire those different stimuli and process them. And again, Meyer talks about it a little bit in his uh, in his work, in his model, but he doesn't actually call it, you know, the Colby visual dominance effects. So I, I found that fascinating. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dirk. I really appreciate this. this is exciting research. I'm looking forward to reading the book. Um, and good luck with the continued sort of looking into this project and seeing what you find. I'm excited to get future insights as well. Thank you sorry, for your interest, Ryan. And I, uh, I look forward to, uh, to talking more about these things. All right, great. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye. Thanks again for listening to 10-Minute TechCom today. Please visit uahtechcom.com for some supplementary links about some of the material in this episode if you want to know more or get more information about Dr. Remley's book, and we will see you next episode. 